Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hudson China Center.、Uh, my name is Miles Yu. I'm the senior fellow and the director of China Center here at the Hudson Institute in Washington D.C.、Uh, today, we are extremely honored to have uh, uh, one of the, one of the two British experts to the world, uh, uh, Mr. Ben、um, Rogers, and another one being, of course,、um, James Bond.、Uh, he's the international man, and there's no person. More internationally known, who has done more to、uh, international human rights than Mr. Benedict Rogers of the UK. So、uh, Ben is the human rights activist and his writer. He has written seven books. Uh, uh, he specializes in Asia. He's a co-founder and chief executive officer of Hong Kong Watch, senior analyst for East Asia at the Christian Solidarity Worldwide. An advisor to the Interparliamentary Alliance on China,、uh, the Stop Uyghur Genocide Campaign, and several other charities. He's also a deputy chair of the UK Conservative Party's Human Rights Commission, and his human rights work over the last several decades has covered、uh, countries like Burma, North Korea, Indonesia, the Maldives, East Timor, Pakistan, and of course Hong Kong. So. Uh, uh, We are very uh, uh, delighted to have、uh, Mr. Rogers join us today to talk about a variety of issues, mostly concerning Hong Kong. So,、uh, Ben, welcome and thank you for participating. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a great honor to be with you. Yeah, let me just start by、uh, by asking you、um, a personal question.、Um, you have been heavily.、Um, uh, Traveled and uh, uh, you've done a lot of uh, uh, human rights advocacy in Asia. How do you get 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 involved in Hong Kong? Well, I got involved with Hong Kong、um, in two ways. Firstly, when I was 18 years old,、uh, I took、uh, a year between high school and university, and I went to teach English in China、um, in the city of Qingdao.、Um, And had a very happy six months in Qingdao. Made many friends there. At the end of those six months, I made a visit to Hong Kong, and that was my my first experience of Hong Kong. But then a few years later, when I graduated from university,、uh, I was looking for a job.、Uh, my dream job was to go into journalism in Asia, and、uh, a job came up in Hong Kong. And I, I spent my first five years of my career, which happened to be the first five years after the handover. Uh, living and working in Hong Kong. Excellent, excellent. So, uh, uh, and uh, uh, when you were in Qingdao, in addition to enjoying the famous beer there, what was the、um, significant event that really impressed you uh,、um, about the the people in Qingdao and and particularly the unique city there? Because I, I myself have been there several times, mostly with the U.S. Navy delegation there. Uh, to visit、right. the Chinese uh, Navy, but uh,、um, I, I think Qingdao is a very unique city. It, it is. It's a it's a beautiful city.、Um, I mean, I was very struck by how the the old、uh, historic city is、uh, was built by the Germans and feels very much like a European city architecturally.、Um, and of course, it's、uh, by the sea with with lovely、uh, beaches. But the other thing that struck me about the people there at that time, and this was about three years after the Tiananmen Square massacre, so this was ninety two, ninety three, people in the privacy of their homes, not in public、uh, so much, but but in in private,、uh, a lot of people were really eager to talk to me about 
the political situation, about their frustrations with the Chinese Communist Party, their desire for change. And, and I was quite surprised by how um, freely uh, many people spoke to me, uh, at least in private. That's amazing because uh, Tiananmen, of course, Tiananmen massacre took place in uh, 1989. When you were in Qingdao, the memory must uh, be uh, much fresher than today. But even today, 34 years later, uh, people in China still have not forgotten about it because there has never been um, accountability for what happened in, uh, in Tiananmen Square and across China um, in 1989. Speaking of anniversary, today is a, 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 another solemn anniversary of some sort, especially, uh, uh, especially about Hong Kong. That is, today marks the third anniversary of the national security law in Hong Kong that was imposed by the Beijing government on the people of Hong Kong. Uh, three years ago. Uh, this marks obviously a turning point in, in Hong Kong's uh, um, uh, history. Uh, this is basically you know, uh, uh, a, a symbolic turning point of Hong Kong um, uh, losing all its high degree of autonomy. Uh, so let's go back a little bit uh, uh, in history. Um, the most important uh, document signed by the British government and Chinese government, of course, um, in the last uh, uh, several decades um, was the 1984 Sino-British Declaration. Um, that is uh, uh, about the, the condition under which Hong Kong will be handed over to the Chinese Communist Party uh, in 1997. Uh, first of all, this, this, this is a unique document. Could you tell us a little bit more uh, about this document itself and why it is important? Well, I, I believe it's an incredibly important document because it was the uh, treaty uh, negotiated uh, between the British and Chinese governments, uh, signed, of course, by Margaret Thatcher on the British side and I, I believe Zhao Ziyang on the Chinese side, but as a result of negotiations with, with Deng Xiaoping himself. Uh, and it um, paves the way for the principle of one country, two systems, which was the principle on which Hong Kong was handed over to China uh, and contains uh, promises that uh, China uh, made to uh, uh, keep and maintain and protect uh, Hong Kong's way of life, uh, basic freedoms, high degree of autonomy, at least for the first 50 years from the time of the handover. So at least until 2047. Uh, and it is an international treaty. It's registered at the United Nations. Uh, and I would say today, uh, China has completely, uh, not just broken, but actually torn up uh, that treaty um, halfway through its, its lifespan. You're right. So uh, it is uh, legally binding in your view. And I believe the UK government also still holds uh, that position because it was registered uh, in the United Nations as an international treaty. Uh, in 1985, uh, so the Chinese government basically, you know, uh, rejected that uh, 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 position um, of its own by saying now it's a historic city, therefore it doesn't really apply. Now the declaration itself, uh, it's very interesting. You mentioned about the one country, two systems. Uh, so um, I went back and I look at it, and uh, because the declaration declares the current social and economic systems will remain unchanged for 50 years, as you say, following the handover uh, uh, from 1997 onward, that would uh, be good until 2047. 
as would its existing rights. Now, those rights were specifically listed uh, as freedoms and lifestyle, and they include rights and freedoms of the person, of speech, of the press, of assembly, of travel, of movement, of correspondence, of strike, of choice of occupation, and of academic research and of religious belief. Uh, that's pretty comprehensive. So collectively, we call it um, uh, a high degree of autonomy. Um, yes, the sovereign rights of Hong Kong would, would, go, would go to China, but the lifestyle, uh, and social, political, and judicial system will remain um, um, distinct from the Chinese system, which is communist. And that's a solemn promise. Promise has been broken. So, um, and also this, I, I think the, the, this declaration of uh, uh, 1984 also said that the, the, uh, the government of Hong Kong will be composed of local inhabitants. Uh, and its chief executive uh, will be appointed by the, by the Beijing government on the basis of the result of elections uh, to be held in Hong Kong. So uh, uh, none of this, of course, has ever happened. Uh, so uh, uh, in, your, in, your, in your view, uh, Ben, um, how much of the rights promised uh, uh, have remained in Hong Kong today? I would say today, as a result of the uh, very draconian national security law imposed three years ago, very, very little, um, indeed, if, if, if any, um, the uh, Beijing has never honored the uh, promise to have uh, proper elections for the chief executive. In, in Hong Kong's uh, basic law, the mini constitution, there is a provision for universal suffrage, but that was uh, uh, never uh, implemented. Um, but uh, as a result of the national security law, really freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, uh, uh, all of those basic freedoms have been destroyed. And um, the vast majority of uh, pro-democracy campaigners who were very outspoken until 2020 uh, have effectively been silenced. Uh, most of them are either in prison or in exile. Uh, and if they're not in prison or in exile, they're keeping their heads down uh, uh, very understandably. Um, uh, most civil society organizations have disbanded. Even trade unions have been forced to disband. Uh, and really, there's, there's almost nothing left of the freedoms and of course the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary has gone as well. The uh, judiciary certainly now is, is heavily uh, politicized and uh, uh, there've been several instances where the Hong Kong government, uh, when, when the courts have um, exercised some level of independence, the Hong Kong government's tried to overturn their, their judgments. So, um, so Hong Kong today uh, has been transformed from one of the most open cities uh, in Asia to essentially a police state. That's a very um, um, serious and, and kind of a sad um, uh, report on the current conditions of Hong Kong. I myself uh, have visited Hong Kong many times. I love that city. I have some friends there. And uh, uh, as you know, I, uh, I work under the Trump administration uh, in the State Department, uh, working as a Secretary Pompeo's uh, China policy advisor. Those uh, there's a nothing that's actually heartbreaking for me to work on the Hong Kong case as it happened at the time, because um, in 2020, Secretary of State Pompeo 
um, with heavy heart certified to the US Congress that uh, the high degree of autonomy in Hong Kong has gone. Um, and as a result of China's heavy-handed uh, approach to Hong Kong and crackdown on basic uh, rights promised uh, in the 1984 declaration and the following basic laws. So um, the um, I understand that the United, uh, United Kingdom has obviously a unique relationship with Hong Kong. Uh, UK um, uh, has a special relationship with Hong Kong. Um, and uh, feels a unique sense of responsibility having governed uh, this territory for somewhere uh, more than 150 years and facilitates uh, its rise to, uh, to the position of being a uh, major financial center in the world. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, how is it that the, the UK government uh, right now thinks about what can do to Hong Kong and to the people of Hong Kong. I know the UK government after the, the tragedy of 2021, 2022 uh, uh, has accepted a lot of uh, um, Hong Kong citizens as a residents. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the, how the UK government responded to the, to the dramatic uh, sad events of Hong Kong in the last several years? Yes, certainly. Um... I think on the positive side, I would give the UK government a lot of credit for uh, the British National Overseas uh, uh, Visa Scheme that they announced actually on the very day, um, uh, well, the day after the national security law was, was imposed. So they announced on the 1st of July, Boris Johnson was prime minister at the time and he stood up in parliament uh, and announced that because uh, China has breached uh, the joint declaration, uh, we would uh, uh, introduce a pathway for Hong Kongers with this British national overseas uh, status to come to the UK. And, and that offers a lifeline to potentially up to as many as 3 million uh, Hong Kongers, or, or maybe up to 5 million if you include family and dependents. Now, about uh, somewhere around 160,000, I believe, have taken it up already. Um, but it does offer a real um, lifeline for, for people to, to get out uh, and to build a new future uh, in, in freedom uh, in Britain. My criticism of the British government is that uh, while on the one hand they've done the right thing in, in that regard, and we had advocated for that, and uh, I think the government went further than I uh, dared expect them to, to go. On the other hand, they have not imposed any measures um, as, as consequences for China's breach of the joint declaration. So there have been no sanctions. Um, uh, and uh, we actually, Hong Kong Watch has made a submission to the British government uh, advocating for sanctioning John Lee, the chief executive of Hong Kong, as a start. Um, but so far, the UK has not imposed any sanctions, in contrast to the United States, which uh, uh, under uh, Secretary Pompeo, and I, I'm sure thanks largely to, to your efforts and, and your colleagues, the US acted very quickly to uh, impose sanctions Britain has not, and that's my, my criticism of, of my government. Um, I think that when a country breaches uh, a treaty in that way, there should be consequences. Now, obviously we can always uh, uh, appreciate the, the, uh, the, uh, the, some sensitive issues uh, with regard to sanctioning. So the US, uh, as you mentioned, we sanctioned um, 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 the major uh, figures in the Hong Kong government 
uh, in crackdown on basic human rights and autonomy from the chief executive all the way down to to executive officers uh, of the government. We also sanction pretty much everybody involved in the Chinese uh, National People's Congress. I mean, many of these uh, vice chairmen um, uh, have been sanctioned uh, uh, on the specific issue of um, 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 taking away Hong Kong's rights and autonomy. Uh, tell us a little bit more about Hong Kong Watch. Uh, what what is uh, 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 what have you done, and uh, what what's the goal of uh, of your organization? Well, the goal I think has uh, changed uh, somewhat as the situation has changed. So I, I co-founded Hong Kong Watch in 2017. Um, I should say that if I go back uh, a little bit earlier, my uh, political engagement with Hong Kong began um, in 2014 when the uh, umbrella movement uh, in Hong Kong was happening. And I saw uh, the very uh, courageous protests in 2014. And I felt that as somebody who um, had lived in Hong Kong, had begun my career in Hong Kong and was working in, in human rights, I had a responsibility to speak out for Hong Kong. So initially I started speaking out just uh, in a personal capacity on my own, uh, sort of in my spare time. And then by 2017, I realized that uh, it was no longer sustainable to do it just on my own. I, I needed uh, uh, an organization and, and, a, and a, uh, a team to, to do this. And so came together with others to launch Hong Kong Watch. Hong Kong Watch was actually given a, an unexpected uh, a bit of publicity even before we had launched it because um, in October, 2017, two months before we were going to launch the organization, uh, I tried to make a visit to Hong Kong and found that I was uh, uh, denied entry on the orders of Beijing um, very publicly. And I was possibly the first uh, Westerner or, or one of the first Westerners to have that happen. There have been others since me, but, uh, uh, and, and my case was raised at the time by um, the foreign secretary who was Boris Johnson. Uh, it was raised in both houses of parliament. It was also raised in the US Congress by uh, Congressman Chris Smith. Um, and that uh, generated quite a lot of uh, unexpected uh, uh, publicity uh, around Hong Kong Watch. We launched Hong Kong Watch uh, on the 10th of December, International Human Rights Day, 2017. And the original intention of Hong Kong Watch was to defend one country, two systems, because at that time we could see that it was under threat, but it had not yet completely gone at that point. Now we've had to change our objectives because we have to acknowledge one country, two systems has gone. And our objective now is, I would say, twofold. Firstly, to keep the spotlight on Hong Kong, uh, especially on uh, those who are in prison, uh, uh, and to make sure that people like Jimmy Lai and Joshua Wong and many others um, are not forgotten, that uh, the spotlight uh, is kept on them so that at least, even if we can't secure their release, at least we could hopefully uh, prevent further mistreatment, um, hopefully prevent the possibility of them being uh, transferred into mainland China uh, and, uh, and, and mitigate the, the circumstances. Um, uh, and within that, we also are adv advocating for sanctions and for consequences uh, uh, for what China has done. The other part of our work that was not part of our original plan but has developed because of the circumstances is um, assisting Hong Kongers uh, who have left Hong Kong and particularly helping them to, to settle in the UK and also in Canada. 
um, and helping them to understand our political systems so that they can engage uh, with our political systems and know their, their civic and political rights um, in our countries. Um, and the organization has grown. We, we started uh, literally with, um, I was doing it in my spare time. Uh, we had one part-time employee in 2017. We now have a staff of nine people. Uh, I'm uh, full-time. Um, and we have um, a lot of work, uh, not just in London, but we're very active in Washington, DC. We've just launched a Canadian chapter of Hong Kong Watch in, in Canada. Um, we engage with the European Union, uh, the United Nations, uh, and, and other countries around the world. That's fantastic. You know, that's fantastic. I think, you know, your organization has done a tremendous job. And uh, um, I think it also, in a way, that helps uh, um, some governments uh, uh, reevaluate their policy toward Hong Kong. Uh, uh, in my personal case, um, what, uh, each year, the US, con uh, US government has to report to the US Congress uh, about the uh, the situation in Hong Kong, basically in light of uh, basically you know it's, it's a mandated report um, uh, as a part of the uh, 1992 uh, uh, United States Hong Kong Policy Act. So each year, the Secretary of State is uh, mandated to uh, to submit the report to Congress to 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 see how much of the uh, high degree of autonomy um, um, is still there in Hong Kong. So uh, when I was uh, working for Secretary Pompeo, each year we have to, uh, to, to gather information. Um, uh, so from the field and from oral sources, and I think we get a lot of documents from your center, from a lot of grassroots NGOs uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, and, uh, and also, of course, hear voices from the brave human rights campaigners, uh, um, such as Jimmy Lai, and, and, and other people uh, uh, who are now languishing in the, uh, uh, in, in the draconian uh, Hong Kong uh, police uh, uh, system. So uh, um, one of the very important uh, um, approach we realize of the Chinese government's uh, uh, governing of Hong Kong is to capture the Hong Kong elites. So they very pay attention, they really care about what's going on uh, on the grassroots level. As in other words, the China spent an enormous amount of its assets, political, financial, and cultural, on um, the, the tycoons, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the real estate the, uh, businesses, uh, uh, owners, and some of them were very wealthy at the top, and they controlled the, uh, 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 tried to control the legislative uh, uh, processes and uh, definitely the chief executive uh, uh, offices. So, uh, I would say, you know, the uh, the uh, such neglect of what the uh, the masses uh, were thinking and what their demands are uh, was partially responsible for the uh, outbreak of the uh, popular protest against the Chinese government's handling of Hong Kong and the erosion of Hong Kong's freedom and autonomy. So, uh, in your sense, uh, how much of that kind of grassroots resistance is still there? Uh, even though kind of sub rosa uh, uh, in today's Hong Kong. Yes, I mean, first of all, I agree entirely with uh, your point about uh, the, the capture of the elite. And we, we published a report, one of our earliest reports in Hong Kong Watch was a report on what we called red capital, uh, the influence of, of uh, the CCP's uh, uh, economic um, uh, 
intrusion into Hong Kong and and uh, and coer economic coercion in Hong Kong, uh, and that that enabled them to carry out the the crackdown they've they, they've uh, conducted. In terms of the situation today, I think that um, within the hearts of Hong Kongers, the uh, resistance is still strong. Um, but of course, it's incredibly dangerous now to for Hong Kongers to do uh, anything. Um, uh, there are some uh, very brave Hong Kongers still who continue to uh, to speak out. For example, uh, on uh, June the 4th, the, the anniversary of the Tiananmen massacre, where it used to be possible until just a few years ago, Hong Kong was the only part uh, of the PRC uh, where um, the anniversary could be commemorated. Uh, Victoria Park, the, the used to be big candlelit uh, vigils with thousands of people. Now that's completely banned, but still uh, even uh, this year, there were Hong Kongers who, who did simple but creative acts like holding a candle um, uh, and they were arrested uh, for it. Uh, there was even a car that had a license plate that I think said um, uh, eight, uh, um, uh, um, four, four, six, eight, 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 nine, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that car was impounded. Um, uh, so definitely people still try to find uh, creative ways to express themselves at, at great risk, but it's it's incredibly difficult. And I think um, the role of the diaspora now is incredibly important because the diaspora is really the only uh, place where Hong Kongers can uh, speak out freely. And even for the diaspora, it's, uh, it's not easy because um, there are repercussions uh, or fear of repercussions for those who uh, may have family back in Hong Kong. Um, even in, in the UK, we've had two incidents uh, where Hong Kongers have been physically assaulted, one at the Chinese consulate in Manchester, and then more recently on June the 4th, uh, no, sorry, not June the 4th, on, on um, June the 12th, the anniversary of the uh, one of the major protests in 2019, uh, there was a rally in Southampton in, uh, in England, and some Hong Kongers were, were, were attacked by mainland Chinese students uh, afterwards. So even in the diaspora, it's not um, entirely safe, but it is at least uh, more free. And that's where I think the voice of Hong Kongers can can most effectively be heard. Yeah. Oh, here in Washington, D.C., uh, uh, there are some very active young uh, uh, Hong Kong uh, activists, and uh, um, they constantly uh, talk to us and share their great insights and uh, um, their bravery. Uh, and they're just spirits um, have never uh, been wiped out. And I think, you know, uh, uh, that's very hopeful. Uh, of course, the road is going to be much longer. Now, let me switch to, to another uh, uh, slightly different angle. Uh, you wrote a, a fantastic book. It's called uh, uh, The China uh, uh, Nexus. And uh, thank you very much for, for, for uh, giving me uh, uh, the copy of that. And in the book, you dedicated uh, uh, this book to uh, for all the peoples living under the Chinese Communist Party regime's repression or threat in China, East Turkestan, Tibet, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Myanmar, North Korea, and beyond for freedom. So that's a tremendous dedication. Now, that also indicated that your focus is not just about Hong Kong. It's not about, about one particular region. You focus on the, the wide area of human rights abuse um, and, uh, uh, and championing for freedom's cause. In your view, uh, just uh, uh, go beyond Hong Kong confine 
and uh, in the entire Asia region that you have been involved. What do you think there are some kind of common threats in, um, in human rights uh, situation and, uh, and some of the uh, most salient points that you can make in your long career for championing um, for human rights? Well, I think, um, first of all, obviously, within uh, other parts of um, the territory that, uh, that is uh, under Chinese sovereignty today, um, one has to remember uh, the Uyghurs, uh, Tibet, uh, and the human rights uh, crackdown across mainland China, the uh, repression of, uh, of dissidents and uh, lawyers and uh, religious uh, practitioners. And, you know, there was a time in the... Um, when I was traveling regularly in, in China uh, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, where I was a little bit more optimistic about uh, the situation in China because there did appear to be some, of course, limited, but, but some limited space for civil society, for some degree of religious practice, um, for Chinese uh, human rights lawyers who were able to take on uh, cases. And of course, uh, there were restrictions and repression but um, there did appear to be that space, and I, I met people who talked about it, and all of that space now has, has disappeared pretty much under, under Xi Jinping. But if you look uh, beyond China's borders, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is really the single body that is keeping alive um, the brutal uh, dictatorships in uh, Myanmar or, or Burma uh, and in North Korea. Um, without uh, the support of Beijing, economically, militarily and diplomatically, those two regimes would not be able to continue uh, the crimes against humanity that they themselves are, are perpetrating. So I think that's a, a key point. And in the book, I have a, a chapter on uh, Myanmar and a chapter on North Korea. Uh, and then of course, uh, one has to think of, of Taiwan and uh, uh, what the future for Taiwan is. And I think it's absolutely vital that the free world makes it very clear that we stand with Taiwan uh, because I think the threat from Beijing towards Taiwan is is getting uh, more more concerning uh, every day. That's a great point. Uh, so uh, I guess that uh, what you're trying to say is that uh, China uh, is a uh, uh, state sponsor of human rights abuse uh, uh, across the region, just like uh, as Iran as the state sponsor uh, uh, terrorism for the larger region of the uh, Middle East. Uh, so. Uh, the uh, the one country two systems formula uh, was designed by Deng Xiaoping and and uh, has been repeated by the ensuing Communist Party leadership uh, as an exemplary model uh, that first practiced in Hong Kong, but their ultimate uh, uh, target actually Taiwan. They can say uh, to the Taiwanese, "Hey, listen, no, we can do this successfully uh, in um, uh, in Hong Kong." Uh, um, and uh, but now that the formula has uh, has failed miserably in Hong Kong uh, uh, because of its uh, uh, inner contradictions, uh, you cannot have uh, uh, one communist dictatorship, and uh, that will never allow um, diversity and political pluralism, and to rule over a country, uh, over a region. That uh, uh, that has the kind of you know democratic genes in there. Uh, so, uh, what is the Hong Kong's failure of the one? What is the failure of uh, one country two system in Hong Kong? 
uh, what can you tell us about uh, the uh, its application uh, uh, for Taiwan? I think the main thing that it can tell us uh, is that uh, the Chinese Communist Party can never be trusted. Uh, uh, it, uh, its promises in, in an international treaty are not worth the, the paper they're written on um, because it has completely broken its promises in Hong Kong. Um, if Beijing had, uh, had honored its promises and really kept one country, two systems uh, alive and well in Hong Kong, then that might have served actually as uh, potentially a quite an attractive model for, for the, especially for those in Taiwan who are sympathetic to the idea of, uh, of unification with, with, with China. Um, but I think today, even those who are, um, who, who, who have that, that wish uh, uh, are not attracted by the idea of one country, two systems, because they know it's, it's been broken and Beijing uh, doesn't keep its, its promises. So I, I think the opinion polls in Taiwan show today that, uh, uh, the vast majority of Taiwanese people uh, reject that model and 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 reject the idea of of any kind of unification and and want um, at the very least the the status quo to continue. Absolutely, and then we we often say you know um, uh, before um, uh, this uh, crackdown in Hong Kong, we also say we often say that Hong Kong can be a beacon of freedom for people in mainland China, and that's a political uh, statement. Uh, Hong Kong, um, for all practical purposes, actually has served the Chinese Communist Party tremendously well, and it's uh, it can uh, use uh, Hong Kong as a as a sort of a uh, hub through which to to get much of the Western um, capital and the Western technology. So economically, financially, uh, Hong Kong has a, a many practical um, uh, usefulness for for China, uh, uh, much of a usefulness for China, but of course. The Chinese Communist Party always places the political security above everything else. So that's why uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Hong Kong's role as a some kind of a, the beacon of, of freedom and, and the individual thinking has threatened the, the Chinese uh, uh, regime. Uh, and I think that right now, Taiwan is facing the same situ similar situation uh, where uh, uh, most of China people inside China aspire to live uh, 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 as free people, like the 23 million people in in, in Taiwan. So uh, that's one of the one of the reasons that uh, you see. I, I think in the Taiwanese politics has also has been fundamentally uh, affected by what's going on, not necessarily inside Taiwan, but also outside of Taiwan. In the last uh, five six years, I think two events that really really fundamentally shaped the Taiwanese domestic politics. Uh, that is the one in Hong Kong, right? Uh, Hong Kong's uh, loss of autonomy has uh, uh, absolutely uh, uh, shocked the, uh, the, the, the conscience of, of, of people in Taiwan. Uh, Taiwanese uh, uh, incumbent president Tsai Ing-wen, uh, uh, her major, major uh, vote-getting point uh, in the previous election was his, uh, her strong support for the people uh, of Hong Kong. And that was very important. Another event, obviously, was uh, what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, because uh, uh, Taiwan and the Ukraine feel much of the sort of shared fate, shared destiny uh, in the defense of sovereignty, independence, and freedom. So uh, uh, in your view, Hong Kong as a free willing, free port, uh, what's your prediction about what might happen to Hong Kong's future? Um, I understand the Chinese government, communist government has an iron grip um, uh, 
role, uh, uh, sort of rule in over Hong Kong. But as you say, Hong Kong is um, is not any unlike many of the uh, Chinese uh, provinces, uh, uh, because Hong Kong has, after all, has a, a, a many many years of freedom. Once people feel the the uh, test of freedom, it's very hard to, to to forget about it. And Hong Kong also has a uh, um, uh, much of the private spaces that mainlanders could not enjoy. For example, the church played a very important role there. Uh, I think the beginning of the collapse of the Soviet system in Eastern Europe has something to do with this. Uh, 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 there is sort of a very uh, limited space uh, within the Catholic Church um, and from where uh, freedom and desire for uh, democracy uh, uh, began to spread. What's your take on the future of Hong Kong? And is there any way that those limited, extremely limited uh, private spaces in, in Hong Kong could expand and, uh, uh, and come back? I think um, that's a really important question. Um, on the one hand, uh, I think if the uh, if things continue on the current trajectory, Hong Kong is almost certainly going to end up as simply another Chinese uh, city. Um, you know, its autonomy uh, and its basic freedoms have been stripped away, um, even economically, which is perhaps the only way that one country, two systems uh, still exists. Even that is. Um, is disappearing as uh, the intention is to integrate Hong Kong into the Greater Bay uh, area and become simply part of the, the much larger Southern China uh, economic zone. Um, so that I think is uh, the, the, the path that Beijing wants and the path that's very likely in the, in the short to medium term. But I also think, as you say, that uh, Hong Kongers are people who, uh, who love freedom, who've proven several times in recent decades that they're prepared to stand for, for freedom. And I think that uh, there will be, uh, they will find creative ways to continue to show dissent. Uh, I have mixed feelings about the role of the, the church in Hong Kong. Um, I, I, wish, uh, I wish it uh, could be the case that the church could play a similar role to, to the one it did in Eastern Europe. And of course, um, with people like Cardinal Zen, uh, uh, it, it, it certainly could. Um, but uh, there are unfortunately many in the church leadership that appear to have taken a, a path of, of compromise. Um, and I also think that religious freedom is the next freedom to, to go in Hong Kong. Um, I mean, freedom of worship currently still exists uh, in the sense that you can go to places of, of worship, to churches on the surface seemingly freely, but already sermons are being self-censored. Uh, uh, people are being uh, under heavy surveillance. Uh, church schools, I think, are coming under pressure from the national security law uh, curriculum in, in the education system. So the church's position is, uh, is under a lot of threat and, uh, and there are mixed opinions among the, the church leadership. Um, but I think in the long term, um, essentially Hong Kong's future is, is indisputably and inseparably linked to uh, China's future and Beijing's future in the sense that change will only really come to Hong Kong when there is change in Beijing. And uh, uh, when that day comes and there is some political change in Beijing, then we may see uh, the courageous Hong Kongers who may have had to keep their heads down uh, in the interim, but we'll see them seizing the opportunity when, when they can. That was a, a, a very good uh, summary. Uh, thank you. Uh, now, you mentioned about uh, uh, Hong Kong cannot uh, be free unless China is free. You're absolutely right. Uh, 
you know, uh, uh, in the West, there has been some kind of naive uh, um, uh, belief that somehow if we engage China uh, uh, rigorously, uh, economically, culturally, um, and the, the Chinese Communist Party would change. So this is so-called engagement policy. That policy has been universally uh, uh, declared as a failure. So now we're talking about uh, uh, a, a Chinese communist regime that basically holds on to its own uh, cardinal principles of dictatorship and Marxism-Leninism. Uh, so uh, uh, yet China uh, is unlike the Soviet Union. China is a very, very heavily involved internationally uh, in the free trade system. So in other words, uh, uh, there has been a very strong external uh, connection with China. And that's probably is gonna be the next battlefield that is uh, uh, that uh, to hope China uh, uh, to change from within has not worked. Probably there will be another way of impacting the change inside China um, uh, from the international arena. Uh, because China is connected uh, with the uh, free trade system. Chinese economy, uh, it's a military, uh, uh, are heavily dependent upon um, Western um, free market and, uh, and uh, uh, technologies. So that's probably one of the few leverages we have uh, left. Um, hopefully that will work. But Hong Kong is even more so because Hong Kong has long been an international free port before the Chinese Communist Party to total control. Uh, and Hong Kong obviously has, a, as you said, has a very active diaspora. I mean, I have been approached by many, many people um, uh, um, in the United States um, who are continuing their fight for preserving and returning um, Hong Kong's freedom and, and uh, autonomy. Um, many of them are uh, uh, pretty dedicated, very dedicated, and they're quite effective. Uh, people like Elmar Yuan and some of the young people uh, who have been doing great work um, in the West uh, to, to exert uh, uh, change sort of uh, on Hong Kong. Because Hong Kong government knows also that uh, without its connection with the international uh, market, uh, with the international system, it really cannot survive for much longer. So what do you think? What you, what's your view about the sort of external uh, impact for NGOs and their role in Hong Kong diaspora on sort of a, a putting much pressure on the Hong Kong government to sort of force some changes onto the government? I, I think the role of uh, the diaspora and and uh, NGOs um, is is very important. Um, I think that not only in putting pressure on the Hong Kong government, but actually putting pressure on our own governments uh, as well. Um, I think in the UK, I'm concerned that there is, um, uh, seems to be a tendency uh, in the current British government to, to wish to get back to business as, as usual with, with China. And you know we've had the Hong Kong um, Secretary for Financial Services vis visiting London a few months ago. Uh, we had the British Trade Minister visiting Hong Kong. And uh, uh, I think that there would not have been a, a fuss made about those two visits if it hadn't been for NGOs like Hong Kong Watch and, and others. Um, so we used the opportunity of those visits to highlight, for example, the fact that the Hong Kong government uh, has effectively stolen uh, the pension funds of Hong Kongers who are 
coming to the UK under the, the BNO scheme. They, they've denied uh, those Hong Kongers access to withdraw their pension funds. And when we learned that the um, Hong Kong uh, Financial Services Secretary was coming to London, of course, we, we uh, 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 briefed the media, we organized a, a protest outside the Guild Hall in London where he was speaking, uh, and we used the opportunity to, to put pressure both on the Hong Kong go government and on the British government. And the British government, uh, to their credit, did then raise uh, this issue uh, with him in, in their uh, meetings with him. So I think uh, we, we civil society and the diaspora uh, has uh, a big responsibility to remind uh, our governments uh, of the issues they should be raising and the actions they should be taking. And you know, on just one last point on your on your point about uh, engagement, which I entirely agree with. Um, it, it's interesting that uh, from what I've seen of Secretary Blinken's visit to Beijing uh, just these past few days, um, it seems to be held up as a success the fact that he had a meeting with Xi Jinping, um, or a success that he had the visit. And to me, I, I'm not against engagement in the sense that. I, of course, we have to talk to Beijing. I, it's too uh, too big a power to uh, not talk to them. Um, but the question for me is, uh, how do we talk to them? Uh, uh, with what objectives? With, on whose terms? Uh, and uh, at about what? Um, and and that engagement needs to be accompanied by pressure uh, and action. And so, so my question from Secretary Blinken's visit is not. Uh, did he meet Xi Jinping? My question is, what did he say to Xi Jinping and what action is uh, the US administration going to follow up with um, uh, following that visit? Uh, so I think engagement always needs to be accompanied by pressure, by action, and the diaspora and NGOs can play an important role in reminding our governments of that. Absolutely. China is a big country. It cannot be ignored, but we have to engage China on our term, on, on freedom's term. Um, with that, uh, thank you, uh, Ben, and uh, for your tremendous work. And uh, um, and um, um, and I think you know your work has actually uh, 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 changed the the policy or impact policy in a very positive way. As you mentioned earlier, uh, the British government actually list, uh, does listen to you. That's the beauty of democracy, right? Um, you mentioned about uh, going back to business. Uh, I was much encouraged by your former Prime Minister Liz Truss' visit to Taiwan, where she made a very very strong statement. Um, and I think you know, the voices like that uh, uh, are all needed. And uh, um, once again, um, so um, uh, this book uh, uh, by uh, uh, Benedict Rogers, uh, China Nexus, buy it, it's really good. Uh, and uh, thank you, Ben, for your uh, great work and for participating in today's panel. And I uh, um, hope to, to have you uh, back again at the Hudson Institute.